I had no idea that I was undergoing trauma. I thought that I was, I was there. I didn't get blown up. I didn't have to kill anybody. This ain't combat in my mind. I thought I, I've seen movies. I know what combat's supposed to be. This ain't combat. This can't possibly affect me. I frankly have enjoyed this because I felt completely utilized, and 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 it was like every part of me was brought to bear every day. So I had no idea that I was undergoing trauma. I thought this is amazing. Welcome to Imposters, the show where I talk to world-class execs, athletes, and entertainers about their personal challenges and how overcoming those challenges has shaped their careers and lives for the better. I'm your host, Alex Lieberman, co-founder and executive chairman of Morning Brew. My guest today is Jason Kander. Jason was a former army captain who served in Afghanistan after enlisting in the army because of 9-11. After leaving the military, Jason looked to continue to serve the country through political service. He was elected to the Missouri State Legislature in 2008 and as Missouri Secretary of State in 2012, making him the first millennial ever elected to statewide office. Soon after, President Barack Obama shouted out Jason, calling him the future of the Democratic Party. Jason followed that up by attending political events all through 2018, planning his run for the presidency in 2020. However, that campaign never materialized. Months later, Jason surprised many by choosing instead to run for mayor of Kansas City, and then three months into that campaign, which seemed destined for victory, Jason stunned the political world by ending his candidacy and stepping back from public life to seek treatment for post-traumatic stress, something that he'd been struggling with since coming home from Afghanistan. Jason's PTSD was something that he was in denial about since coming back to civilian life, and Jason's symptoms brewed into depression, an inability to sleep, and eventual suicidal ideation. He spent eight months addressing his mental health, and today Jason has made it his mission to provide that space for all veterans returning from duty. Jason's newest book, Invisible Storm, is incredible. It's all about acknowledging trauma, no matter how small it may seem, and Jason relates his own experiences with PTSD to talk about this issue. Today, Jason is the president of National Expansion at Veterans Community Project, a nonprofit organization dedicated to fighting veteran suicide and veteran homelessness. And if you need another reason to get Jason's book, all of Jason's royalties from Invisible Storm are going straight to the organization. And you probably already predict this, but as a heads up, we do briefly speak about Jason's experience with suicidal ideation in this episode. Okay, let's get into it. My full conversation with Jason Kander right after this quick break. Jason Kander, thank you so much for joining Imposters. Thanks for having me. So I've spent uh, a fair bit of time listening to interviews that you've done, watching YouTube videos uh, where you speak, obviously watched uh, the famous commercial that, that you've done. And what I feel like is oftentimes your career in the military is talked about, your political career is talked about, but I actually haven't seen that much documentation just around your story before then everything that preceded joining the military. So I actually want to start there for a few minutes. Tell me about uh, your life growing up and what that was like. Yeah, I grew up uh, in the suburbs of Kansas City. 
my family, we've always been a Kansas City family, right? Like my kids are sixth generation Kansas Cityans. My parents met as juvenile probation officers. Uh, my dad was also a cop. And so the ethic in our house was, it was a public service sort of ethic without ever, no one ever was like, you will be in public service. But what it was like was, for instance, in our house growing up, it was me and my younger brother, Jeff. And then when I got to like grade school, there were kids, like boys that we were friends with in the neighborhood whose families were struggling. And my parents brought them in and they became what we've always referred to as our unofficial foster brothers. And it wasn't like where they sat us down, Jeff and myself, and we're like, okay, we're thinking of, you know, we're thinking of letting Justin stay here. It was just like, there's another spot at the dinner table because that's what my folks were like and, and are like. It's just, if you have the ability to help somebody, then you're going to help somebody. And so that's really what we learned growing up. The other important factors, I guess, uh, were, we, I didn't grow up poor. I didn't grow up like filthy rich, but we were quite comfortable. And, and that obviously, uh, I think is a huge influence on, on every, like, if you have means, it, it, it's a different childhood oftentimes, right? And there was no time growing up where, like, somebody in government could make a decision that was going to take food off of, of my table. Like, now, now we just refer to this as, as privilege, and, and that's, that's what it was. So I had a, I had a really fantastic uh, and privileged upbringing. If someone was to ask you the question growing up, whether it was in grade school, middle school, high school, what you wanted to be when you grew up, did you have a sense of that, or what did you say? Oh, yeah. No, I was going to play center field for the Kansas City Royals. Uh, and uh, I mean, it was... Well, you do like, you do play I, center field today, right? For the Kansas City Hustlers of the Men's Adult <laughs> Baseball League. Um, so it's pretty much the same thing. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, I was going to play uh, center field for the Royals. But I, I, I mean, I was practical. I was like, well, I got to, you know, I know it's important to have a backup plan in case that doesn't work out. Uh, and that, you know, would at first I was going to be a, a cop. My dad had been a cop, uh, and then I was going to be a fighter pilot because, you know, I was born in 1981, and Top Gun came out when I was like five, so all of us were like, well, I guess I'm going to be a fighter pilot. And then at some point, I think it was like, okay, I think it was in high school when I was in, I was in debate, and I was like, I was a good baseball player, but like, I wasn't getting any like full-ride offers to play baseball, but I started getting them for debate. And I was like, oh, I guess I'm good at this. And that became, I think I'm going to be in politics. I didn't know what the heck that really meant or would look like. And it was like, well, then what do I do? It's not like you're going to join in with a big political science firm. So it's like, well, I guess I'm going to go to law school now. Um, and I understood that I did really like, I liked being in front of people and making an argument. I hadn't yet grown up enough to realize that what I wanted was not just to make an argument, but to make an argument that I believed in and cared about. Like it was, it was still at that point, like it was competitive and I liked that I was good at it, you know? Well, I mean, that's like a, a really important nuance though, is that transition from kind of just like the competitive energy to argue and win an argument versus to argue for something that you really care about. When do you think that transition happened for you? So when I deployed to Afghanistan, I was at that point somebody who had my law degree. I wasn't a lawyer in the army. I was an intelligence officer, but I had been around politics a little bit. I had studied it. I knew that I wanted to run for office, that kind of thing. And I knew what I believed. I was, I was a progressive. But it was still sort of like, I believe that stuff, so that's my team. When I was in Afghanistan and you know, you're doing missions where you don't have the equipment that you really should have. 
and you don't have armor on your vehicles when you should, you, or you got to go over the road for things where you really should be doing it via helicopter. It'd be a lot safer to do it that way. And you're being told, well, you know, a lot of those resources have been moved to Iraq. This was 2006. That was the first time in my life that I'd ever been on the receiving end of politically driven decisions and that it had negatively affected my life. Because like I said, growing up, we weren't in a position where a politician could make a choice that would take food off our table. That was the first time that I felt that. And I remember viscerally seeing the thread between that and things like what was going on in my home state at that moment, cutting people off Medicaid and then bragging about cutting the budget. And it was a direct through line. So then when I came home and I started to run for the state legislative office that I had had designs on already, I did it with a completely different point of view. It, it was instead of it just being, I'm a Democrat and not much more thought in it than that. It was, they've cut these people off of Medicaid and it was, it was politically driven. And I saw sometimes to a fault, I was just so angry. Well, it's interesting because it seems like you just, you couldn't have sped up the timeline for you to have this perspective of really wanting to kind of through politics fight for a cause or for something. You couldn't have really sped it up because it was this moment in your life where you realized how the decisions that political figures make can actually not only impact you like you saw that, but also can impact the people back home that you knew and you lived with. Right. I mean, it, that's exactly right. It, it gave me a perspective that I would not have been afforded otherwise. I mean, it, had it not been for deploying to Afghanistan or just for being in the army at all, well, then I would just be another white guy uh, who grew up pretty comfortable and had the good fortune to get a, an education with a brand name, you know, like Georgetown, where I went there for law school. So that afforded me additional opportunities. And look, I'm, there's nothing wrong with that, but I'm not, I don't think that that would have given me a particularly helpful perspective that was like lacking in politics. But instead, what I was was somebody who understood what it was like to be on the on the bad end of those decisions. But more importantly, it was somebody who understood uh, that I wasn't special. And 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 what I mean by that is, I had been exposed to people who were so different than me, who had come from such different backgrounds than me but who I had come to respect so much because I saw the courage that it took for them to do what we were doing or what we were all doing over there. And it then sent me to, in that case, Jefferson City, our state capital, with a much higher standard for what I wanted to see out of people. So, so as a result, when I was trying to get, you know, an ethics bill passed, a campaign finance reform bill passed, and people of my own party would say to me, you know, I agree with you on that, but I, I can't sign on to it because I don't want to lose my parking spot. The speaker will take my parking spot. Man, I... You'd, yeah, you'd lose that, your shit. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, I'm like, hey, man, a few months ago, I watched, like, a 19-year-old who was so scared he was ready to puke get into an unarmored vehicle because the people around him were doing it and he knew it was his job. And you're, like, worried you got to walk an extra 20 feet from your Corolla? So... Yeah, it, it imbued me with that perspective for sure. I want to talk for a second about just your experience in the military making the decision um, before getting into your political career. From my understanding, you decided that you were going to 
go into the military after September 11th, after waiting in line to donate blood and then uh, being turned away. Talk me through that experience and why it was such a an obvious decision for you to then go join the military. And I asked that from the perspective of, like, you seem like a very practical human being. And one could argue that the decision to go from donating blood to joining the military feels like a pretty extreme jump. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it didn't feel extreme to me at the time um, because of the perspective I went into it with, right? So my grandfather was in World War II, and my great-grandfather was uh, in World War One. My great-uncle was in World War Two, And I, that's not enough to make you inclined toward it. But there was something about that for me, and maybe this is just part of how I was built, that always made a lot of sense to me. And the part that made a lot of sense to me was that a war happened and they were of age. And so it was just very matter of fact to them. You, you went and you served and then you went on with your life, but you went and you did it. And, um, and there was a part of me that wanted that for me. And, and, and it sounds like warmongerish or strange maybe, but, I respected that a lot and it made a lot of sense to me. And I can remember in college, I would write long emails home to Diana. Now my wife, then my, my fiance, I would, I would write these long, ponderous emails about, you know, am I really a man if I've never been tested? I was aware that like, Ooh. what was the hardest stuff I had done, right? Like debate tournaments and baseball games. And I, I had a yearning for something that would push me to that and, 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 see what I was made of and make me feel like I had met some moment in the world. I definitely had a yearning for that, but look, I also was like going to college and I, I wasn't like getting up every day and going running. I wasn't, you know, I, I, I wasn't in a hurry to disrupt yeah. my life and go and go serve. So where that all was for me prior to nine 11 was what I would describe as the maybe someday category of my mind, which was to say, I would talk about service as, you know, maybe someday after law school, I'll go into like the JAG Corps reserve or something, but I have no idea if I ever would have actually done it. So then nine 11 happens and I go down uh, town in DC to give blood and then when the woman comes out after a couple hours and says, you know, we don't have the capacity to take any more blood. I hope you find some other way to help. For me, it just clicked like I'm going to. I'm going to join the military because like my grandfather and like my great grandfather, I'm going to go and I'm going to do this and then I'll go on with the rest of my life. And interesting for me, what happened next was my professors, a lot of my peers were like, what? What are you doing? And what I would hear over and over again is things like, but you have an education. And that always really made me mad because I, I felt like, look, I, yeah, I come from this privilege, but my understanding is, is that I have these opportunities and, and, and that, I, I, that comes with an obligation. And it just made me mad because, you know, look, I was going to school on the East Coast, but I came from Kansas City. There were a couple of kids from my high school baseball team who were already in the army because where I'm from, that's considered on par with going to college. It's a, it's a good career option. And I understood that for my professors who had come up during Vietnam or for, you know, my fellow students who, who came from a place where going into the army to them was what you did if you couldn't go to college. And so it didn't make sense to them. And that, I just, I found that offensive and, and that sounds high and mighty and self-congratulatory, but it irritated the hell out of me. And I just felt like, who the hell am I to be like, we're going to war, but not me. 
it just didn't seem right. And so to me, I guess I was the kind of person, Alex, the best way to explain it is that day I had an email from one of my brothers who just, he knew me my whole life. And his email was, I know you're going to join the army. Don't join today. So I think it's how I was made up. How did your family react to you joining? So how did your parents react? How did your now wife react? So my wife, I, you know, that day in, in DC, the, uh, the phones, because they were overloaded, weren't working for much of the day. So you couldn't call home. And so finally that night I called home and, and I told my wife, you know, I'd gone to give blood. And I think I'm going to enlist because I couldn't take blood. And she, she, my wife's very practical and funny. And she goes, well, okay, maybe you just go back tomorrow and see if you can get blood. <laughs> you know? Um, but Diana came to the United States at the age of eight as a refugee from Ukraine, uh, from anti-Semitism. And so her parents, you know, I, they really didn't, that didn't resonate with them. They didn't understand, like, you're going to go be part of the army for the government. You know, my father-in-law had been conscripted into the Soviet army. Yeah. It didn't make sense to them. It actually, I think, in a lot of ways made sense to my wife because what we, what made us so bonded and what we had always... I guess our, the first thing we had in common was we were in love, but we were also a partnership that was about, we were going to change the world together. And she could see right away, like, this is one of the things Jason's going to do. She couldn't relate to the idea of wanting to go live in the woods for weekends at a time and be dirty and all that stuff. But she could see the way it lit me up. Um, my parents were not thrilled, but they weren't like against it. They were just, now that I'm a dad, I understand they're just scared. I mean, they were just scared for me. And here I was, I was in my twenties. Like I didn't, I was too dumb to be scared, but they were scared. But at the same time, I think very proud of me. And my dad, you know, had been a police officer. He was also a private pilot who had been offered a commission to fly in the air national guard back in the, in the seventies. And he had passed on it. And he had from time to time growing up, you know, like one of the planes from the local guard unit would go over and my dad would kind of mention if he had taken the commission, like maybe he'd be in charge of that unit by now. And so I, I, I knew that it was something that I, my dad looked back on and thought maybe he missed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so I remember, uh, so vividly the day that I got my commission as an officer, my parents, my whole family showed up at the commissioning ceremony. And it was the first time that my dad, I'm actually trying not to get emotional talking about it, ever saw me in uniform. And I, I remember, I just kept noticing him just, just looking at me. And, uh, so, you know, it was a mix of, of pride and fear, uh, which boy, I bet that's a pretty universal experience for parents of, of kids who go into the military. I, I mean, I'm not a parent yet, but I'm getting the chills thinking about it. Cause I can imagine just how conflicting of a feeling that is for a parent where it's like, mm-hmm. you know, you're, your whole world, once you have a child, becomes protecting your child and making sure that you bring them up in this world to li- live the values that you know you'd want to live for yourself. And then you got to a point where they they no longer can make all of these choices for you. And mm-hmm. it, in some ways, like yeah, pride is what comes to mind. In other ways, it's like you know helpless and fearful because even if they didn't want you to go, they knew it's not their choice to make. Best uh, explanation of that feeling of being a parent I've ever heard is like walking around with your heart on the outside of your body. You know, that's what it is, I think. I want you to talk for a minute about your experience in 
training for the military, being deployed. Just paint a picture for people who are just less familiar with the experience, what it was like for you. Sure. Um, so I started my military training simultaneous to starting law school at Georgetown, which was a really interesting living in two worlds for me. Um, because here I was a first year law student and everybody in my law school class is engaged with the sort of emotions and drinking from a fire hose that is typical of, of that one L year. And I was supposed to be doing the same thing. I, I was really, I was supposed to be really engaged in the latest reading and caring about what I was learning about contract law. And I didn't give a shit. Like I, I didn't, I just, I couldn't get excited about it at all because the country was going to war and what I was doing, you know, in RTC. And then soon after that, as a member of uh, infantry unit in the army national guard as well was, I was learning about small unit tactics. I was learning how to, you know, how to set up an L-shaped ambush and and how, how to take a bunker, how to patrol. I was learning soldiering. And I, I, I was shocked at how much I loved it. I went into the army thinking, okay, I'm going to do this because it's the right thing to do and because I want to, I want to meet this moment. But one thing that I did not expect and did not think, two things. One, I didn't think I was going to be any good at it. My idea of myself was, I mean, I'm a debater, right? Like, like I didn't, you know, I, I did not see myself as clearly I'm going to be a soldier. Like the first time I put on the uniform, I remember feeling like an imposter, you know, feeling ridiculous and being like, I feel silly wearing this. It feels like playing dress up. I didn't expect to be any good at it. And I was so wrong, you know, bragging a little, but I was... I was a good army officer. I was a good soldier. But more than that, um, I loved every bit of it. And and I remember, um, I read about this a little bit in the book. I remember my first full-on simulated combat training exercise. We were out in the woods for days, and you're thirsty, and you're hungry, and you're tired, and um, you know you're sleeping just a little bit at night. You're conducting patrols and doing all this stuff, and you're you know your face is camo painted, and you're just dirty as hell. And we're marching back a few miles to where the buses are because we're, we're done with this exercise. And we're singing these cadences at the top of our lungs. This one called um, Gory Gory Hallelujah, which is literally just about dying violently. And I remember one of the more senior cadets rolls up next to me and turns to me with this huge grin on his face. And he goes, how fucking great is this candor? We got to do some real army shit. And I remember, and we just like laughed so hard, like this, like, and that, you know, when you, when you're part of a tribe and a, a group of people who understand each other and the outside world does not, and you have this maniacal laugh together, it's like this all encompassing inside joke. Yep. And I remember at that moment realizing like, I love this. And this is what I've been looking for my whole life. Th this was the thing I was looking for. The thing that would push me all the way and would tell me, Am I made of it or am I not? Can I hack it or can I not? And that's where I was. And I was so tired and every part of me hurt. And it was, I think, the happiest I had ever been in my life up until that point. And, and that's when I realized, like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And it's funny now because I'm a veteran now, right? And, and I've actually been out for over 10 years. I don't feel like I have, but I have. But when people think of me, they, I'm a politician. Like that's the, you know, I, I'm really not anymore, but that's how people think of me. And I think most people figure 
oh, okay, like he did the army for a little while because he wanted to be in politics. And what people don't understand is I loved it. It's so interesting because I think, you know, for a lot of people, at least in the U.S., when they think about going into the army, you know, they don't even consider it because they're fearful for their lives. They're like, why would I consider doing a job where where I could die, where I could not come home? It's really interesting, obviously, to, and I'm sure this isn't just your story to tell so many others, this concept of, in so many ways, people talk about in their lives, finding a job where they feel like there's a North Star, where they feel fulfilled in the work that they're doing. They feel stimulated by it. They feel like a belonging to a culture, right? And it seems like those are all of the things that you felt. I guess to the the concern that a lot of Americans have, were there points in your journey where you were just fearful for your life, where you were just scared? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, there were those times in training where you're just scared. Like, you got to climb a really high thing or you got to go into the gas chamber and take off your mask. And, you you know, or there's just times where you're like, oh, good God, we got to run up this hill? I mean, it's just stuff that, you know, like there's that stuff. And then when you deploy, I remember when I got to Afghanistan, one of the first things that happens, my first convoy is going to be like what they told me we were going to have in training, right? Or like what I'd seen in movies at that point, which is like a badass dude up on a huge machine gun up over an armored Humvee. And we would roll with like, you know, 20 deep and like look like nobody wants to mess with you and then you show up to afghanistan and you're ready to go on this and you you're all dressed up in your battle rattle you got everything and you feel like, it's like i'm gi joe i'm ready to roll and then what pulls up are some mitsubishi pajeros which are just <laughs> basically ford escapes yeah with no armor or anything and it's like okay let's let's go from here to Kabul. and uh and and i remember in that moment my physical fear was so strong that I, I felt like I was going to throw up. And and then once I got into the vehicle and everybody else, you know, who's maybe getting back from their mid-tour leave, they, they're used to this, they're sitting there and I'm the new guy. We're all going down to my unit. And they're like, oh, hey, yeah, you're the you're the new army lieutenant. Great. And, and they're just shooting the breeze with me. And I'm thinking, I've gone from being physically afraid to being socially afraid. And I'm like, please don't puke. Please don't puke. Because I'm just like, don't be the new lieutenant. <laughs> who spends his entire tour as the guy who puked out of fear <laughs> right away. And uh, yeah, so there's definitely times like that. But then what happens is, and this is kind of an interesting thing, is that it's amazing what can feel normal. You know, it, it's not that I stopped being afraid. Um, I didn't stop being afraid when it was appropriate to be afraid. But what happens is, is it's, it's incredible how somewhat quickly it can just be normal to feel afraid. And it doesn't mean you're not afraid. You are. Uh, but what happened, the other part of that is, is that when the people around you are doing the same thing you're doing, then that feels like it's a normal thing to be doing. That's combined with this very necessary form of brainwashing that the military does, where the moment you get off the bus in basic training, it has gotten across to you that what you're doing is no big deal. And that Somebody else is doing something much more. And this is true. I don't care what you, you, you could be freaking Audi Murphy, John Wayne. It don't matter. You are made to understand and believe that somebody else has had it tougher. And that's super important because if they hadn't done that with me, for instance, as an intelligence officer going out to get information from people who might want to kill me and I'm outgunned in every room and it's just me and my translator a lot of the time with no backup. 
you know, if I had bitten from the tree of knowledge that this was not totally normal and it actually was kind of a big deal, it might be real hard to get my legs to carry me into yeah, the Yeah, you wouldn't be able to function. Life. Right. The problem is, and this is really what largely my book is about, is that then when you get out of the military, nobody sits you down and goes, okay, uh, you should know. That was some crazy shit. And actually, that was a really big deal. And you should, you should probably address that. That's going to be a problem. So instead, you just go into your civilian life being like, I have it on good authority that that was no big deal. So there's no reason that anything going on with me is connected to my service. I guess the point of the chapter is two things. One, I didn't want to spend the whole book talking about Afghanistan because you don't need that. The book's about what happened after. So I spent a chapter on it. I spent a day on it. But the other thing I wanted to get across was I had no idea that I was undergoing trauma. I thought that I was, I was there. I didn't get blown up. I didn't have to kill anybody. This ain't combat in my mind. I thought, I, I've seen movies. I know what combat's supposed to be. This ain't combat. This can't possibly affect me. I frankly have enjoyed this because I felt completely utilized. And, and, and it was like every part of me was brought to bear every day. So I had no idea that I was undergoing trauma. I thought, this is amazing. It was this buried trauma from the Afghan war that now defines Jason's life. And what feels more tragic to me was that Jason genuinely enjoyed his time in service abroad. And it makes me wonder if the military chose to acknowledge the trauma that soldiers face, if we would have less mental health problems associated with veterans. Jason definitely thinks so. After the break, we will get into some of this trauma that Jason talks about, how dark it really got, and what brought him out of that hole. Stay with us. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. So let's talk about that trauma. Let's talk about the experience after. Tell me what reacclimation was like for you. So when I first came back, I had what I thought were just adjustment issues, right? Like the moment my plane touched ground in Qatar, uh, leaving Afghanistan, uh, I developed like a twitch in my left eye, like a, a, a muscle spasm in my left eye. And that lasted for like six months. But then the story I could tell myself was, well, that went away. Uh, it still comes back every once in a while. But, but I was like, well, that went away. So I guess I'm over that, right? And then it was stuff like I had a real hard time when I would be in a vehicle and we'd stop at a stoplight. Because in Afghanistan, like you try to avoid stopping, right? Because you might get blown up. Um, and I was having trouble with things like like large crowds, you know, not just watching everybody all the time. I really, really didn't like having my back to a door. And, you know, so this, but this stuff, it didn't all come on at once. It was, some of it was gradual over the months that I came back. But what, what started pretty soon after I came back were uh, nightmares. They started as just nightmares. They eventually became what I would describe as night terrors with sleep paralysis, which is to say I would uh, wake up, my, my brain would wake up 
um, but my body wouldn't. And so then you're, and then you have this, um, feeling that whatever was threatening you in the dream, which in my case was usually, uh, I was about to be kidnapped because that was what I was always worried about as an intelligence officer. And it was now it was coming for me. So it was like a hallucination, but I was, I was actually awake and I couldn't breathe. It was bad. Uh, it was, I don't recommend it. Um, but here's, that's all sort of the symptomatic stuff. When do you think you like truly understood the gravity of it? And do you think that it took you a while to understand the gravity because you didn't feel permission to yourself to talk about this because you had a definition of what was fair game to talk about, if you were qualified to talk about these things, et cetera? They're combined. My belief that what I had gone through didn't count enough as combat to warrant PTSD meant I didn't earn PTSD, right? I was trying to rank my trauma out of existence. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know it was trauma. I was just trying to, yeah. trying to, I thought I was trying to gain perspective, right? Uh, because I, I could say, hey, my buddy Steven, you know, he lost guys right next to him, right? He, so I was able to tell myself that story, but it didn't help. I thought it did, but it didn't. Uh, and that caused me to say, okay, I would re, I would literally Google PTSD and be like, and just look for ways to say, oh, it's not me. No, that's no, that's not me. And I would shortchange myself on that. So this went on for years. My symptoms got worse, and they evolved, and they evolved in ways that would allow me to tell myself a story that said, okay, see, it's not PTSD. For instance, my night terrors were so bad that I had them every single night, and I started to have them all night. I, I went eleven years without a good night's sleep. Jeez. But what happened about halfway through that period is they stopped being set in Afghanistan all the time. And sometimes the, they weren't even a military context. They started evolving to be at my home or at my office. And it, it was frequently no longer me who these you know bad guys were coming to get. It was my wife. Or eventually when we had our son, it was, it was my son, True. And so the story I told myself was, see, these aren't related to Afghanistan. This is just something with me. Right now, what I later learned in therapy is that's actually really dangerous and it doesn't happen to everybody with PTSD. But when it does, it's really dangerous because it contributes to another symptom that I was already having, which was hypervigilance, this belief that I was in danger all the time or more than that. The world is a very dangerous place. And I don't know what the hell is wrong with all these people around me who don't seem to understand that. Right. But when you're also having these evolved night terrors where there is danger present in your modern contemporary environs every night, it only contributes to the feeling that there is literally danger everywhere. But again, I was like, well, that's not me. And so I started to, I'd say, you know, by the time I was secretary of state and I, I realized to myself, I said, I should be better by now. I knew enough time had gone by. And the other thing I thought was, and this was wrongheaded, but I didn't know it. I thought, man, I won my race. I'm becoming known nationally. I, I'm the first millennial ever elected to a statewide office in the United States. I, I'm having success. I'm getting to do these things that I wanted to do. Why the hell mm -hmm. am I having these problems? Because at this point, now I haven't slept for several years. I'm developing self-loathing because who the hell am I to have these problems? And after a while, combined with all these other symptoms, um, that can become depression and it's just so damn exhausting. Yeah. And it had been so long since my deployment that I had actually gotten to a point, by the time I'm getting ready to run for president, I it had been so long, I forgot what I was like before I deployed. And I just figured this is who I was and must be how I'd always been. And so here's to your question. When I really 
knew. It was two things that happened. So the first thing was I had gotten to a point where I was getting through life by chasing endorphin hits. And for me, those endorphin hits were performances. They were political milestones and moments. And so I, I had reached what really was the zenith of my political career, which was I was giving a nationally televised speech in New Hampshire. And it, the speech was clearly the, okay, I'm not going to say the words yet, mm -hmm. but we all know that this is my, I'm going to run for president speech. And you're all going to decide, am I the guy, right? Like that's what this is. And People from, you know, Mayor Kansas City, Mayor St. Louis, they all flew to New Hampshire. Everybody was like, this is the moment, right? My, my closest friends. And uh, we got this room full of people. This speech, the year before me, I think the keynote was Hillary Clinton. Uh, and the year after me, it was Elizabeth Warren. And the year after that, it was Joe Biden. And this day, it was me, right? So this was the moment. And I crushed it. I mean, I don't mind telling, like, I know when I do a speech well, I know when I don't. I knew I had destroyed this. I knew it had gone exactly how I wanted, and I had nailed it. Felt great that night. Next morning, I was leaving. My, my family and I we were leaving New Hampshire, and the TSA guy at the airport looks at my ID, looks at me, and says, Oh, it's the next president of the United States. Everything feels great. I get on the plane, and it's gone. I was suddenly numb. I was numb again, and it all left me, and it had never left me that quickly. And I knew, okay, if this, if this high can't make it 12 hours, something is seriously wrong with me. So that's the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened was after I had, you know, cut forward a couple months, I had decided that this big solution was I'm going to go serve my hometown. I'm, instead of running for president, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run for mayor in my hometown and I'm going to go to the VA. That's the promise I made to myself. I still wasn't ready to admit to myself it was PTSD, but I was like, something's wrong. So I'll do that. I go home, start running for mayor. The campaign's going great. Like if you go from running for president to running for mayor, like, you should be the prohibitive front runner. And I was, um, I'm not doing well. And I didn't keep my promise to myself to go to the VA. I pulled my punches. I didn't fill out all the stuff, honestly. Mm -hmm. And campaign's going great. And I'm thinking every day more and more about killing myself because I just, it was too much. And I felt like a burden. And then the big moment for me, and it wasn't a big moment, but it's just, it would, I would have gotten there at some point. I think what happened for me was I remember I kind of run out of ideas to feel better. And I realized that I was getting worse at a faster pace than I had been getting worse in a while. And I, and it was, I was afraid of it because I didn't want to want to kill myself. Right. And so I decided to call the veterans crisis line. And I remember having imposter syndrome about it. I remember thinking, they're going to tell me, don't cog up this line. There are people who really do have service connected issues. You know, they're going to tell me like, hey, that's not what's going on with you. I don't know what to tell you. And the first question, one of the first questions the woman on the other end of the phone asked was, have you had suicidal thoughts? And at that point, I had never said it out loud to anybody other than my wife. And I said, yes. And then I just started crying. But what got me was the tone of her voice when she reacted to me because she didn't talk to me like I was in any way any different than anybody she had talked to in that shift or in that job. And when I heard her voice, I that's when I knew. And I went and I Googled post-traumatic stress disorder again and I really read it for the first time and it was like somebody had fucking written it about me. And that was it. That's when, you know, I cried for a long time and I, I laid on the couch and I said to my wife, uh, I said a couple of things. I said, it's been all these years and I had no idea that I got hurt over there. And then the next thing I said was, I don't want to do this anymore. 
<clears throat> anyway, that was a major moment for me when I said, I don't want to do this anymore. And that's, that's when I made the decision to get out and to stop what I've been doing. What is it in uh, reflecting uh, on that just that gets you emotional and thinking about that moment? How fucking important that was in my life. And also like remembering the weight of realizing that. I mean, to me, it felt like, you know, I, I'd gone through all these years of my life feeling like if I claim the mantle of post-traumatic stress disorder, it's stolen valor because like, I had guys who I served with who came home and they took their own. And one guy I was close to who took his own life who, you know, did almost the same job as me, but I didn't put it together, right, until years later. And then I, I had a guy who I who I trained with who I thought really highly of who um, was hit by a sniper and was brain damaged and blind. And so to me, like, for me to claim post-traumatic stress, I, I was it wasn't tenable to me. But in that moment, it went from, I can't have post-traumatic stress disorder to, you know, because I didn't earn it, to fully accepting the idea that I'd been wounded, right? Like going from who the hell am I to feel bad when I got through this without a scratch to suddenly realizing, oh, I the last decade I had no idea I got hurt over in Afghanistan. And so that was just an enormous shift in my frame of reference about everything I understood. Well, I appreciate you... Um you sharing. Um, and I think, first of all, for, for listeners, I think it is such a, a helpful thing to hear you talk through your journey because I think people will listen to you, especially in the early points of your career. And they'll think, you know, like Jason is a man's man, like Jason, <laughs> uh, you know, you know, he has this competitive mindset, like he is the, the perennial definition of a man. And, whether you view yourself that way or not, I think there are certain dated expectations of what that means, which I think those dated expectations are you not doing exactly what you just did in sharing what this process has been like for you? Yeah, I I got to the international capital of zero fucks left to give. I, I mean, I got to rock bottom, man. Yeah, I talk about it for a lot of reasons. Um, and the same reason I wrote this book, which is that if I had heard somebody talk 14 years ago the way I talk now, or if, if Invisible Storm had been a book that was available to me to read when I got back from Afghanistan, I'd have gone and I'd have got treatment. And I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you as somebody who had been through all this terrible stuff. I'd have been a guy who got hurt, got it treated by a doctor, and moved on. But instead, I, I'm a guy who I spent a decade trying to run on a bad leg, so to speak, and making it worse all the time. And so I feel like, you know, my highest and best use at the moment is to demonstrate to people that, you know, you don't got to be a combat veteran. You, maybe you had a car accident, a bad divorce, you lost a loved one, you survived cancer. I, I don't know what it is, but like trauma is trauma and you ain't going to rank it out of existence. It ain't going to work. And it don't get better with time either. It's not wine. It's, you know, I like to joke, it's it's like an avocado and nobody builds <laughs> avocado sellers. It's, so you got to deal with it. And, and I yeah. figure, you know what, if I can lay it all out in this book and people can see, here's a guy who seemed to have everything going for him, that's important for them to go get help. But what's most important really is the third act of this book where I walk people through what it was like to get therapy and to gradually get better and to take on these challenges and to find where I want to be in life now. To me, that's the most important part because there are plenty of people out there who don't go get help because they think it's weak. 
but not as many as there used to be because our culture understands, I think, in a greater way now that it is a sign of strength to go get help. What I see are a lot of people, and I was part of this too, who don't go get help because they don't have any reason to believe it'll make a difference. Mm-hmm. And if you are led to believe that trauma or post-traumatic stress disorder is a terminal illness, that it will end your life or that it will end your career or both, if you believe that, why would you ever go get diagnosed with it? So people need to know it's not going to end your career. And actually, you don't have to feel like this, that your depression is not necessarily a part of your trauma. It's grown out of you not dealing with your trauma, that if you're having suicidal thoughts, it's not because PTSD automatically makes you suicidal. It's because maybe you're like me and you've gone 11 years without a good night's sleep and you've grown to a point where you don't understand yourself and you hate yourself and you think you're a burden, you know, deal with the underlying stuff and you're not going to want to take your own life anymore. And so I, I just... That's what I want, is I want people to see that post-traumatic growth is possible. And the last thing I'll say about it is, uh, if none of those reasons are a reason for people to buy the book, what they should be, but if they don't (laughs) like that, uh, buy it because all of my royalties are going to combat uh, veteran uh, suicide and veteran homelessness at Veterans Community Project. I love that. How are you doing today relative to then? I'm doing very well. Uh, Thanks. Uh, You know, my life is, I'm the president of National Expansion at Veterans Community Project, which means I get to build things that are important to me across the country that I I know make a difference. I have a podcast where I'm still part of the conversation. I, I still engage in the debate. And those are really, those things are great. They're not the main things I do, actually. They're important. The main thing I do is I'm a husband and I'm a dad. I coach my son's little league team. And I'm the guy that I wanted to want to be. All those years, I was like getting ready to run for president, hanging out with Hollywood stars and thinking that would fill me up and all that. I didn't understand people who could coach their kid's team and you know drive their pickup truck and do that stuff and be happy. And now it's what I want and it's what I'm doing. I, I, I play baseball. I'm an over 30 wood bat team and I get dirty and I steal bases and I try not to hurt myself too bad. And I'm trying to bat over 300 as best I can. You know, What's your average right now? 333, but I'm barely hanging on. Uh, it's a lot of infield hits. I'm pretty, I'm fortunate to be pretty fast and speed don't slump. You know, I'm doing those things. And I, I got to tell you, I love what I do professionally now. I love it. Jason Kander, thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Alex. In my short hour-long conversation with Jason, I quickly got a sense of his pure ethos and his earnest drive to service the people of this country in any way that he can. It's something that we expect out of anyone who comes from a military background, but the way Jason spoke to his military experience illuminated the struggles of a veteran in an incredibly visceral and relatable way. I highly recommend anyone who is interested in this conversation to check out Jason's book, Invisible Storm. You don't need to be someone who has served to find it an incredible read. Now, imposters listeners, we need your help. We would love to hear from you on how the conversations on imposters have impacted your life. How does this show help you in your career or your personal life? Are there any particular guests or episodes that have stood out to you? And tell me the stuff that you haven't liked where you want the show to get better. Our goal is simple. We want to make this as valuable as humanly possible and make the show worthy of your time. So shoot me an email at alex at morningbrew.com and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Imposters is a production of Morning Brew. Our senior producer is Vishnu Valvanani and Michaela Heck is our producer. 
Brian Henry is our executive producer, and A.B. Silver is our booking producer. Our sound engineers are Dan Bauza and Rosemary Minkler. Emily Milliron is our video producer, and Sarah Singer is our VP of Multimedia. Our theme song is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Original music in this episode is by Rosemary Minkler. <laughs>